We're continuing in chapter 9 of Romans, starting in verse 14. If you would read along with me. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might so show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the, over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left, uh, left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Thank you, Mariana. Well, this morning, this ought to be fun. Um, I'm preaching this, and then I'm going on vacation this week. And so if you have any questions, you can call Jared or, or Bill or Mike or um, Eric, and they'll um, handle and clear up anything that I say or anything that's in this passage this morning. So um, it's an old preacher trick I learned a long time ago. So anyway, this would be great. But this morning, here is our last sermon in 2020, so our last sermon for this year, and, and so we come to Romans 9, we, we come to where we left off last week in what I called and referred to uh, one of the most controversial and debated chapters in all the Bible, Romans chapter 9, and the reason that it's one of the most controversial and debated chapters in all the Bible is because it deals with one of the most controversial and debated doctrines in all the Bible, which is the doctrine of of election. And so if you're not familiar with that term, if that term is kind of new to you, election, and, and really not familiar, or not really knowing how to really articulate and define and explain exactly what that doctrine is and what that doctrine teaches, here's, here's kind of it, and this isn't on your handout, but here's kind of a quick definition, concise summary definition, explanation of what the doctrine of election is. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his free sovereign choice. For those of you who like to take notes, I'll say it again. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his free, sovereign choice. And so then last week, if you remember, we left off with, with examples of this doctrine of election, and we saw that in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 9 last week. So if you remember, we left off there with, with God choosing Isaac and not choosing Ishmael to be the child of the promise. And so if you remember there, both of them were biological children of, of Abraham, but only one received the promise. God only chose one to receive the promise. And then we saw God choose Jacob and not Esau. And again, if you remember, both Jacob and Esau were physical descendants of Isaac, so they were both physical descendants of the child of the promise, but God chose Jacob to receive the blessing and, and the promise and not Esau. And not only that, if you remember, we saw that 
God made that decision, God made that choice before either of them had even been born. Before any of them had even, either of them had even done anything good or done anything bad. Before either of them had made a decision or not made a decision. Before either of them had done absolutely anything. God chose one and he didn't choose the other. And the reason, if you remember, that God did that was simply because that was his will. That was his purpose. He simply made that choice, made that decision based upon his free sovereign choice. And if you remember then, to kind of tying all that back together, what that was supposed to teach us then is that the way that a person then becomes a child of the promise or the way that a person becomes part of the people of God, the true spiritual Israel, isn't by being an ethnic Jew and part of ethnic Israel Instead, the way that a person becomes a child of the promise and part of the true people of God and the true spiritual Israel is based upon God's free sovereign choice. If, it's God, if God wills it and purposes for a person to be part of, included part of the people of God. And so like, I know, right? You hear that. And I know you heard what you heard last week and like all sorts of objections and all sorts of questions begin to flood your mind, such as that's not fair. So, so then does that mean like we don't have any choice in the matter? Or how can God hold somebody responsible for not choosing him if it's ultimately up to him? And he's the one who ultimately makes that choice. How can God hold us responsible then for the choices that we make? Or do, does this mean that evangelism doesn't matter then if God's just chosen who's going to choose? Then why, do, why even share the gospel? And there's like 35,000 other questions, right? And objections like, no, you didn't. Yeah, I've got one, you know, and I, I get all that. And they're all great questions. And these are all questions I have wrestled with in the past and some questions that I still wrestle with even like this morning and right now. But they're questions also that, that Paul anticipates that we'll have as we read about God's sovereign election here in chapter 9. And so what Paul's going to do in the rest of this chapter this morning is, is he's going to do this. Paul's going to raise two of the most common objections to this whole idea of God's sovereign choice and God's sovereign election. He, he's going to raise two of the, he's, he's like anticipating. He, he's like, I know when people hear this, here's what they're going to, here's the objections they're going to have, here's the questions they're going to have. And so Paul just puts those objections out there before they can even be asked. And he seeks to answer them before they can even be asked. And that's what we're going to see this morning. What Paul's going to do is he's going to, He's going to raise and ask and, and answer two of the most common objections that people have when it comes to this whole idea of God's free sovereign choice and election. And then after he asks and raises these objections, he's going to answer and respond to these objections for us here this morning. But here's the deal. He, he's, not going to, he's not going to like ask and raise every objection. He's not going to ask and 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 raise every question that we might have and answer every question we might have when it comes to this whole idea of God's free sovereign choice in election. The reality is the Bible, this might disappoint some of you, but the Bible doesn't answer every question and every objection that we might have when it comes to this doctrine. Instead, and we'll talk about this later, but the Bible leaves room for, for mystery. And we have to like be okay with that. But what we're going to see within this chapter is Paul's going to raise two, not every, but two of the most common objections and questions that we have when it comes to this whole doctrine of election and God's free sovereign election. And he's going to respond to each of them. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. You see this on your handout there. First objection he's going to raise and that he's going to answer is this objection. It's the objection that God's sovereign election isn't fair. That it's not fair. That God, this, this makes God to be unjust. 
And it's not fair for him to just sovereignly choose people before, before they've even been born, either to be saved or, or not saved. And this is what we see right from the very get-go there in verse 14. Look there with me. Remember again in verses 10 through 13, Paul talked about how God sovereignly chose Jacob instead of Esau before either of them had even been born and how his choice of them was simply based upon his free sovereign choice. And then after saying that, look at the question that Paul asked here in verse 14. He asked, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? In other words, remember the context here. Was it unjust and unfair for God to choose Jacob instead of Esau for no other reason than it was God's will to do so? Is that just? Is that fair? Or let's make it a little more personal, right? Is it unfair and unjust for God to sovereignly choose to save some, but not to save others? Like, is that unfair and unjust for God to do? Well, look at the answer that Paul gives to that question in the rest of verse 14. He says, by no means. And, and here's why. Here, here's why it's not unjust or unfair for God to choose to, to freely save some and not others. He, he gives us two reasons why that's not unjust or unfair for God to do. And you see this on your handout. The first reason is this. It's because God is free to bestow mercy on whomever he wishes. God is free to bestow mercy on whomever he wishes. This is what Paul says, look at verse 15. What he goes on to say there in verse 15, he says, for he, referring to God here, says to Moses, and then Paul's gonna quote here from Exodus 33, verse 19, which says, and God's speaking here, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends, on, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So like, how's that for an answer? Right? People are questioning whether or not it's fair for God to choose Jacob and Esau, and God fires back and says, I'll show mercy to whoever I want to show mercy to. That's your answer. I'm free to show mercy to whomever I want to. And like I know, right, that should bother us. Like that, that should strike some sort of chord or, or tension on our hearts. And I know for some like you hear that, that, that doesn't set well with you. And if, if that's the case, then, then there's two truths we need to remember here. Okay, and the first truth is this. It's that God is free. God is free. We don't talk about this much, but this is huge when it comes to the, the nature and the character and the essence of who God is. He's free. And what that means is this. He's not bound or obligated to anyone or anything outside of himself that would constrain him or force him or compel him or cause him to do anything. And, and that's why then in verse 16, look there with me, Paul says, so then it, and the it here is a reference to God's mercy. It's a reference to God's compassion that he mentioned there in verse 15 there. So then God showing mercy depends not on human will, meaning on what humans will decide, or exertion, meaning not on what humans do, but God's mercy depends on God who has mercy. In other words, what Paul's saying here is this. God showing mercy to someone isn't dependent upon a decision that someone made or anything that a person did. Instead, God showing mercy to someone is completely dependent upon God and his free sovereign choice. In other words, he's free to show mercy to whomever he wants. There is nothing outside of him that obligates him or forces him or constrains him to show mercy to anyone. What that means then is this. 
if God then chooses to show mercy to some and not to others, then that doesn't make him unjust because he's not obligated to show it to anyone in the first place. Instead, he's free to show mercy to whomever he wants to. The second truth then that we need to remember is really the flip side of this first truth. Not only is God free to show mercy to whomever he wants to, secondly though, the second truth we need to remember is that we don't deserve mercy. Like we don't deserve mercy. And this is really important to catch. Just stay with me here. Mercy isn't a right. Mercy isn't a right. It's really important that proud Americans hear this. Mercy is not a right. Nobody is entitled to mercy. Mercy isn't something that anybody deserves. If we deserved mercy, it wouldn't be mercy. It would be justice. Because by definition, mercy isn't something we deserve. What that means then is that God doesn't owe anybody mercy. Instead, God, 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 doesn't, God doesn't owe mercy, mercy to anyone. And because of that, then it's, it's not unfair of him. Since, since, since we don't deserve it, then it's not unfair of him to give it to some and not to others because we didn't deserve it in the first place. Does all that make sense? But this is why we struggle with this whole idea of sovereign election. is because we don't get those two truths. You see, when we start with the premise that everyone deserves mercy and that God's not free, instead he's obligated to show mercy to everyone, then if God sovereignly chooses to save some and not others, then we'll always think that he's, he's being unfair. But if we start with the premise that no one deserves mercy and God's not obligated to show mercy to anyone, then if God sovereignly chooses to save some and not others, then we won't think that it's unfair. Instead, we'll be in all that he chose to save anyone to begin with. I know that's not the answer anybody's looking for, but that's the answer that the Bible gives. Which then leads to this second reason why God is not unjust or unfair to choose to save some, choose to save some but not others. And the second reason is this, and this is tougher to swallow than the first reason. The second reason is this, is because God is free to harden whomever he wishes. God is free to harden whomever he wishes. This is what we see next there in verse 17. Look there with me. Paul says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then what Paul's doing here is he, he's quoting again from Exodus. And this time, if you remember, he's quoting from Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. If you remember, chapter 9 in, in Exodus is, is all about God hardening Pharaoh's heart and sending all of these, these plagues upon Egypt and the people of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, God says that, that the reason that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and sent all these plagues upon Egypt was so that God could display his great power for all the world to see. In other words, so that God could multiply all these plagues and so that God could deliver his people out of Egypt and so that his name then and his power and his glory would be proclaimed upon all the earth. And so then here, here's the main point and the, the takeaway that, then that Paul wants us to take away from this story in Exodus of, of the plagues and gardening and Paul um, hardening Pharaoh's heart and, and doing all that so that his name and his glory would be proclaimed and, and magnified. The main point he wants us to take away from that is it's found there in verse 18. Look there with me in Romans chapter 9. Paul says, so then he, referring to God here, has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That, that, that's that first quote from Exodus that he, that he mentions is, is there to teach us that, that God is free to show mercy to whomever he wills. But this second quote that he, that he quotes here in verse 17 shows us that God is free to harden and judge whomever he wills. 
And, and that's what God's hardening of a heart is. It's an act of judgment. It's an act of judgment upon that person. He judges that person by hardening their, their heart. So then let's come full circle on this. Do you see then, or do you know why then, it's not unfair or unjust for God to harden and judge whomever he wills? The reason it's not unfair and unjust for him to harden whomever he wills and to judge whomever he wills is because unlike mercy, it's, it's what we deserve. And, and it's what Pharaoh deserved. And since it's what we deserve and what Pharaoh deserved, then it's not wrong or unjust for God to judge us in this way. But again, this, this is where the struggle comes in. When it comes to this whole idea of God hardening and God just judging whomever he wills. That the reason this is such a struggle in our hearts is because we don't think we're all that bad. Like we, we, think, we think, and so since we're not all that bad, then, then we're like, well, that's not fair for you to do that. The only problem with that is we are that bad. And this is what everybody deserves. In other words, this is huge to remember. Like, none of us start off in a morally neutral position. He's not bad. He's not good. Just a whole bucket of morally neutral people that God just like, okay, you'll be all hardened. You, uh, that's not how it works. We all start out in the bucket of bad. We all start out in hell. We all start off, start off under the wrath of God. That's that's. That's where, we, that's where we are. And so then for God to judge us by hardening our hearts in this way isn't unjust or unfair for him to do. Instead, it's the most just thing he could do. In other words, God hardening hearts as an act of judgment doesn't compromise his justice. It's a display of his justice. And therefore, he's not unfair or unjust to do so. So then that's how Paul answers this question, this first objection, that God's sovereign election isn't fair. Starting in verse 19 then, he's going to raise a second objection that he's going to answer. And the second objection is very closely related to the first objection that he just raised and answered. But this second objection comes in the form of a question. And the question is this, and you see this on your hand out there. The question is this, why does God hold us responsible or people responsible if our salvation is ultimately dependent upon him? What, how or why does God hold people responsible if our salvation, their salvation is ultimately dependent upon him? So this is the objection and the question that Paul raises here in verse 19. Look there with me. He says, you will say to me then, so he's anticipating their question, their objection. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So again, follow that, follow that flow of thought there from verse 18 into verse 19. Verse 18, he says, God is free to show mercy to whomever he wills, and he's free to harden whomever he wills. If that's true then, how can God hold anyone responsible if our salvation is ultimately dependent upon Oh, that's a great question. And here's Paul's answer. And again, I need to warn you, it's not the answer that anybody wants to hear. Or it's not the answer that anybody is looking for. But his answer is this. You see it on your hand out there. It's that as the creator, God has the right to do whatever he wants to with his creation. As the creator... God has the right to do whatever he wants to with his creation. So he can show mercy to some, and he can harden others. Because he's the creator, and he can do whatever he wants to with his creation. So Paul says there in verse 20, look there with me. He says... Here's his answer to that question. 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You see the the picture that that Paul's trying to paint there in verse 20? You You have the creature man answering back and questioning his creator God. So then the creator God, in response, looks back at the man he created and asks, who in the world do you think you are? Who are you to question me? Who are you to sit in judgment over me? Who are you to rebuke and complain against me? In other words, I'm the creator. You're the creation. So what gives you the right to question and sit in judgment over me? You're the creator. You're the creation. I'm the creator. Then he gives this analogy there in verse 20 to show how absurd and ridiculous it is for the creation to question and rebuke and sit in judgment over its creator. And we see this analogy in the rest of verse 20. Look there with me. Paul writes, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So then within this analogy or illustration, the potter here is the creator, right? And the clay here is his creation. And so then it would be absolutely absurd and ridiculous then for the clay to one day talk back to the one, he, to the one who created him, the potter, and say, what are you doing, potter? It's not fair that you made me into a... a a pot to a bowl to eat from instead of a, a vase. That's not right. That's not fair. That's unjust for you to do. You're, you're wrong, Potter. Like that would be utterly absurd and ridiculous. Like the Potter can do whatever he wants to with the clay. He can fashion it into whatever he wants to into a vase, into a bowl, into whatever else potters use clay for, right? Obviously, I don't know. But, you know, he he can do whatever he wants to with it. Why? Because he's the potter. He's the creator. The clay is the creation. So he has every right to do that clay, whatever he wants to do. So then, if he wants to make his clay into something for honorable use, then he can do that. If he wants to make his clay into something for dishonorable use, then he has every right to do that. Why? Because it's his clay. That clay belongs to him. It's his. And the same is true for us when it comes to God and us. He's the potter. We're the clay. He's the creator. We're the creation. Because of that, then like we we belong to him. And since we belong to him, then he has every right to do with us as he sees fit. He has the right to make some for honorable use, which as we'll see here in just a minute, means salvation. And he has every right to, 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 to make others for dishonorable use. Which, which we're about to see is a reference to God's wrath and, and judgment. And again, that's hard to swallow. Like the first 15 years I ever heard that, I didn't swallow it, I spit it out. I didn't like it. But I, I know this is hard. And if it's not hard, you're not understanding like what I'm saying. This is hard. And I know that's, that's not the answer like you're looking for when it comes to these hard questions about how God can hold us responsible when he's the one who ultimately decides who's going to save and who he's, going to not, who he's not going to save. But again, this is the answer the Bible gives. 
doesn't wrap it in a nice little bow with this nice tidy little answer that just satisfies all our minds and hearts. This is it. And we're going to have to be okay with this. Again, remembering like God, he's infinite. His mind is infinitely wise and knowledgeable and full of understanding. And then here we are, just a little pea brain, a little bit of wisdom, a little of understanding, a little bit of knowledge. So why in the world are we going to think that we're going to understand all this? We're not. It's It's mysterious. But one of the reasons we're not okay with this and that we do struggle with this is this reason. We fail to remember this creature-creation distinction that Paul is trying to make here. And the reality is we really don't see much difference between the creature and his creation. In other words, we have a really low view of God and we have a really high view of ourselves. And because we have such a low view of God and high view of ourselves, then we buck at the idea that God has the right to do with us and God has every right to do with us as, as he wants to. Instead, since we have a low view of God and a high view of ourselves, we think we have certain rights. We think we have a say in this matter. But the reality is, since he created us, we're the creation, he's the creator, we belong to him, and since we belong to him, he has every right to do with us as he sees fit. And he won't treat us in such a way that compromises his character. He will always act with us and toward us in a way that is consistent with his character. But he's free. And he has every right to do with his creation as he wants to do. So then that's the first answer Paul gives to why God can hold us morally responsible even if our salvation is ultimately dependent upon him. The second answer he gives then is harder than that one to accept. And the second answer is is this, and I probably could have worded this better, but it's that God condemns some to wrath so that he can display the glorious riches of his mercy through judgment. Let me say that again. God condemns some to wrath so that he can display the glorious riches of his mercy through judgment. Again, I could could have worded that a whole lot better, but but here's what I mean by that. Starting here in in verse 22, Paul's going to give the reason and explain why God made one vessel for honorable use, meaning for salvation, and another for dishonorable use, meaning for judgment. So so Paul's going to explain his ultimate reason and his ultimate purpose for why he chooses to save some and and not others. And here's the reason that Paul gives there in verse 22 and verse 23. Look there with me. He asks this question in verse 22. He asks, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So then that's really hard to follow there, right? Kind of difficult to follow. Like, well, what are you saying here? And all this stuff. But, but here, here's what Paul's saying here in verses 22 and, and 23. He's saying that God is patiently waiting and holding off, pouring out his wrath, on the vessels of wrath that he's prepared for destruction. He's patiently waiting for that. He's not patiently waiting for them to repent and turn to him. That's not what this patience is all about because they've already been prepared for destruction. that's, That's already been settled. And so what this means is he's waiting until the final judgment on the last day to pour out the full measure of his wrath and his judgment upon the vessels of wrath that have been prepared for destruction. And the reason that he's waiting to do that until then and doesn't do that like immediately right now is so that he can display the full measure of his power and the full measure of his wrath 
when he judges them at the final judgment. So then he's holding off, pouring out the full measure of his wrath now until, that, until the full measure of that, the splendor of his wrath, the power of his wrath is poured out all at once then on all the vessels of wrath that have been prepared for destruction. And do you know why he's waiting until then to do that? Verse 23 tells us. In order to, or so that, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. In other words, God is going to wait until that final day of final judgment. He's going to wait until then to, to, to pour out the full measure of his wrath on the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And the reason he's going to do that is so that his mercy will look even much more sweeter and awesome and glorious. In other words, the splendor, think about it this way, the splendor of one's mercy looks only as great and awesome as the judgment that that person spares you from. In other words, think about it this way, if a police officer shows you, shows you mercy and spares you from the judgment of a traffic ticket, then, yeah, you could say, that police officer's pretty merciful. His mercy was displayed a little bit, right? Because he, 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 he showed you mercy and, didn't, and spared you from a traffic ticket. So you see a little bit of mercy. That, his mercy looks pretty glorious because he got spared from a traffic ticket. But if the God of the universe spares you not from a traffic ticket, but spares you from the full measure and the full fury of his wrath and his judgment that he's, that he's reserved for, our, that, he, that you deserve for your sins, then, then his mercy looks infinitely glorious and looks infinitely awesome and is infinitely worthy of praise because the background of, on the backdrop of that mercy isn't just a little bitty traffic ticket that he spared you from. Instead, it's the full measure, of the full fury of God's wrath. So then do you see that the point that Paul's making here? He's saying that this right here is the reason why God didn't choose to save everyone. Like this, this right here is the reason that God chose to save some but not others. It's why God prepared some for destruction and some for glory. The reason he did that was for his glory. So that he could display and show off the fullness of his glory. And the fullness of his glory doesn't just include mercy and compassion and grace. It also includes justice and wrath and righteousness against sin. And so then God prepared vessels of mercy, or God prepared, excuse me, vessels of wrath for destruction and didn't choose to save some so that he could display the glory of his wrath and the glory of his justice. And as he displays the glory of his wrath and the glory of his justice, then the splendor of his mercy toward those he has chosen to save looks that much more glorious and that much more rich. Mercy doesn't exist if there's no judgment. And mercy doesn't look that glorious if that judgment isn't great. So God, motivated by his desire to display the greatness of his mercy, prepared vessels of wrath for destruction beforehand so that he could pour out his wrath upon them, showcasing the glory and the power of his wrath and his justice against sin. And the main reason he did that was to serve as a backdrop for the glory and the power of his mercy. 
and to showcase how glorious and powerful his mercy is. And so the reason that God prepared some for destruction and God prepared some for glory and the reason that God chose to save some and didn't choose to save others is because in order to showcase his mercy, he also had to showcase his judgment. And I know that's hard to swallow. And I know that's hard to take. And I know all the objections and all the things flooding your mind, flooding your heart right now. And how some of this even makes some of y'all just want to vomit and spew whatever out. I get that. At the same time, remember this. God's chief end and ultimate goal in everything that he does is his glory. That's it. The chief end and ultimate goal behind everything God does isn't to save everyone. The chief end and ultimate goal in everything that God does is to display his glory, which is manifested then through both his wrath and his mercy, but especially his mercy. In verse 24 and 20 through 29, then Paul explains who the vessels of mercy are that he created and chose and prepared prepared beforehand for his glory. So he identifies and explains who they are. Those vessels, who those vessels are that he created and chose and prepared beforehand for his glory. And we see who they are in verse 24 there. Look there with me. Paul says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So right there, this, this is who the vessels of mercy are that God has chosen to save and, and prepared beforehand for glory. They include, first of all, a remnant of individual Jews who have trusted in Jesus by faith. And they also include individual Gentiles who have trusted in Jesus by faith as well. And, and so then that's the whole point then of these four Old Testament passages that Paul quotes there in verses 25 through, through 29. He quotes them to show that these promises that, that God made back long ago in the Old Testament they're now being fulfilled, and they're not, this is important, they're, they're not being fulfilled now through ethnic Israel, ethnic Jews. Instead, now they're being fulfilled through Jew and Gentile believers whom God has chosen and prepared beforehand as vessels of mercy for his glory. So then, those are two objections that Paul raises and two answers that he gives to this whole doctrine of God's sovereignty election. That's tough. That's hard to swallow. So like, what are we to do with all this? Like, what's the takeaway? What are the implications of all this on our lives today? What, what effect should any of this that we've looked at, these objections, these responses, answers have on our lives today? What effect should it have? Well, I mentioned five things. And we're going to fly through these really, really quick. Implications that God's sovereign election should have on our lives today. And the first should be this. Embrace, so that we should embrace the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Like the primary focal point, like this is a no-brainer, but the primary focal point of, of Romans 9, obviously, is God's sovereignty, right? Like God's sovereignty and election. Like that, that's, that's the main thing Paul wants us to get across, God's sovereignty and election. However, at the same time, when we begin to flip through other passages of Scripture throughout the Bible, we see God holds man accountable. God holds man responsible for his actions. God holds man responsible. God, hold man's, God holds man accountable for his rejection of Christ, for the decision he makes when it comes to what he's going to do with, with Christ. And so then the obvious question is the question that was posed earlier. Is how can both of these things be true? Like on one parallel, on one track, you have God's sovereignty in election. On the other track, in truth, you have man's responsibility, man's accountability when it comes to his choice and the decisions that he makes. And so how can both of those things be true 
at the same time? You know what the answer is? I don't have the foggiest idea. I have no clue. I don't know. It's a mystery. And you and I have to be okay with that. The Bible never tries to reconcile those two truths. How can this be true and how can that be true? The only way it reconciles is, is God looks back at us and says, who are you to question me? Like, that's all we get. And I did it for my glory. I mean, but how does all that reconcile? And how does God respond? Well, man, God's sovereign and man's response. What, how does all that reconcile? And I don't know. I, I don't know. But the Bible never seems, tries to reconcile them either. But at the same time, the Bible says that each of these truths are equally true when we shouldn't diminish one and minimize one for the other. God is wise. He's infinite. We're not. So it shouldn't surprise us. There, there's a lot of things that God does that we don't understand. We're not God. So we don't understand. And we need to be okay with mystery. God doesn't reconcile those two truths, and we shouldn't rec- seek to reconcile them either. Second implication is this, is that we need to let the Bible determine who God is and what he's like. I shared this before, but, man, I, I, I used to despise this, this whole idea and this picture of God that I'm preaching this morning. <laughs> I used to despise this whole idea of God's sovereign election. And the main reason I despised it is because I didn't like the view of God that, 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 this, that the, this kind of truth and this sort of teaching displayed. I couldn't imagine that that's what God was really like. And I couldn't imagine me worshiping a God like that. But it wasn't until that I came to the point and finally said, God, it, it doesn't matter who I want you to be. It doesn't matter who I, who I like you to be. It doesn't matter who the God that I can worship or who I, in my mind, can't worship. Instead, all that ultimately matters is the God that has revealed himself in this Bible. And however and whoever he's revealed himself to be, I'm, sim- I'm simply supposed to submit to it and worship that God. And that, that's the implication here. We need to get to the place where we allow Scripture to determine to dictate who God is and what he's like and what he can and cannot do. And not, not allow our personal preferences and what we, we want God to be like. Next implication then is this, is that we need to share the gospel with confidence and hope. You know, one of the reasons many people don't like this idea of God's sovereignty and election is because they say that it, it, it um, hinders evangelism. It removes any motivation for evangelism. And I get where they're coming from on that and can follow their logical train of thought when it comes to all that, but the reality is when we look at the Bible, it says the exact opposite. And so when we look at the Bible, what, what God's sovereignty and election does, it doesn't hinder evangelism. Instead, it gives hope for evangelism. It gives hope for evangelism. The reason it gives hope for evangelism is because we know that God has sovereignly chosen some, and all we're supposed to do is go out there and share the gospel and see who's chosen before the foundation of the world. And so it makes our job a whole lot easier, but they can't come to faith in Christ simply because God has chosen them. They come to faith in Christ as we get to Romans chapter 10. It's because somebody shared the gospel with them, and they received it and embraced it by faith. So it gives hope for evangelism. Next implication then it's this. It's to trust in Jesus by faith to save you. Trust in Jesus by faith to save you. In other words, when you hear all this, the last question that you need to be thinking and and wrestling with is, has God chosen me? Like, that's not the question that you need to be answering or asking. That's not the question that you necessarily need to be trying to figure out and try and get behind the scenes, what God did behind the scenes and what God did before the foundation of the world and before you were even born. In other words, your, your job isn't to try and figure out all of that. Our job is simply to trust in Jesus by, by faith. In other words, we, we've all rebelled against God. We, we all deserve God's wrath, but God sent Jesus in our place to suffer the death that we deserve in our place and serve as a substitute in our place, take the judgment we deserve upon himself in our place so that all who turn from themselves and trust in Jesus by faith will be saved. And those who do that, those whose faith and salvation is genuine, 
then that's who God has prepared beforehand as a vessel for mercy. But there are response, and what we're responsible for isn't to figure out who God's chosen for. Our response is to trust in Jesus by faith. And so if you're here this morning, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning wrestling with even if you are a Christian, then don't be fixated on this question of whether or not you're a part of the elect. Instead, be fixated on the response of trust in Jesus by faith. That's the response you should have. Then the last and final implication is this. It's to worship God for a sovereign mercy. To worship God for a sovereign mercy. In other words, if God has shown you mercy, then the only reason he's shown you mercy isn't because of the decision that he knew you were going to make in the future. It's not because you're such a good dude or dudette. Instead, the reason that God chose you is because he simply just chose you based upon his will and his sovereign purposes. He prepared you beforehand to be a vessel of mercy, to display the greatness and the richness of his glory. That is the only reason that he chose to save you and not others. The reality of that then doesn't cause us to puff our chests out and be filled with pride. Instead, the reality of that causes us to be humble and causes us to worship him because he has done something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Praise be to God for his sovereign election. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for hard passages in your Bible that cause us to wrestle and struggle with hard truths and pictures and images of you that we don't naturally want to think about or that naturally don't come to our minds when we think about you and why we worship you and praise you. But Lord, I pray that in the midst of the hard truths that we've seen this morning, I do pray that it would cause us to have an elevated view of who you are, and it would ha- cause us to have a right view of who we are. That we, have a, we would have a right view of this creature-creation distinction that you make throughout this chapter. And that we would put you in your rightful place and worship you accordingly. And that we would put ourselves in our rightful place as well. And as a result, as we look at this whole idea of your sovereign, free sovereign election, it wouldn't cause us to object and sit in judgment over you and how can you do this and do this and do that. Instead, it would humble us and cause us to worship. And so I pray that that would be the case for us here this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.